Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Peter Bookfar. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Financial Group, a CNBC contributor and the author of the book report that is spelled B-O-O-C-K, which provides summaries and commentary on the macro data and news that matters with analysis of what it all means and how it fits together. And I got to say, I really enjoyed this conversation with Peter on all things macro. I learned so much. I took a ton of notes. We talked about everything. We talked about this economy, which he describes as a death by a thousand cuts economy. We talked about the Fed. We talked about inflation, housing, the China reopening story. We even talked about the Bank of Japan and the implications there. We talked about how, you know, big tech stocks here in the U.S., how their best stock days are over, some of the narratives out there in the market and the economy, and so much more. Again, I really enjoyed this conversation with Peter. I think you will, too. And by the way, if you're enjoying this show, thank you so much. I really appreciate your support. Thank you to the listeners who've been back week after week. And if you're new here, welcome. It's great to have you please leave a review or a rating or share the show or reach out to me. I would love to hear from you. I'm on social media. I'm easy to find. You can also always shoot me a note at Julia at JuliaLaRoche.com. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer of Bleakly Financial Group and author of the book report, B-O-O-C-K, and a CNBC contributor. It is so great to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Peter. Thanks, Julie. I appreciate having me on. Well, I'm really excited to have you on and especially to have a conversation around what is happening in the world of all things macro. So Peter, I was hoping uh, we can start with your big picture macro view. What is that for you today? And then we can start to zoom in on some of these ideas. Well, let's do a a quick review of 2022, because I think that helps frame the the setup for 2023. The the main story, of course, was 40-year highs in inflation and the most aggressive monetary policy response in 40 years to that. And then we sort of ended the year and had begun 2023 with inflation now moderating and the belief and likelihood that the Fed is almost done raising interest rates. So what hurt us the most last year, we seem to be getting some relief now on. Uh, But um, I I think that we're still in a bear market and that seeing a top in inflation, seeing an end to the rate hikes was really just one hill conquered. But there's another hill to conquer this year, and that's interest rates, while they're not likely to go higher from here on the short end of the yield curve, they're going to stay high for a while. And staying high for a while means that you is a is another form of continued monetary tightening, and that is because all the debt that has been uh, borrowed over the past 10, 15, 20 years at very low interest rates, anything that's going to come due this year is going to come due at a much higher uh, interest rate than the loan that is maturing. At the same time, we have quantitative tightening that will continue throughout the year. And also, we have to deal with the economic consequences uh, of all of this. So that's sort of what I consider the next hill. And we're already seeing moderation in in the economic data in the U.S. Now, that all said, there are some positives which we can get into, and that's the China reopening, lower energy prices in Europe that uh, sort of bailed them out this winter, and, and so on. 
That is an amazing outline for this entire conversation. Um, so thank you for framing it up so nicely for us too. You're mentioning um, this other hill we have to climb right now and you kind of uh, bring up a number of points. I wanna explore um, what you were saying about this, uh, another form of continued tightening, this debt that is coming due, um, the higher rates with those loans that are maturing. Can you help me um, and help fo folks who are watching and listening kind of understand like how that might play out? Where would you see potential impacts of this? Well, a few different areas. Well, let, let, let's just assume that, um, well, let's just start if you're a household. You, you if, To get a mortgage, you need to uh, pay more than 6%, 6.5% just to get a mortgage. That is double what one was able to get you know, more than a year ago. So that changes the whole calculus of what kind of house can I buy? Uh, and Or I'm just going to have to save more money for that down payment, and I'm going to have to rent instead. Uh, if you take it from a business perspective, anyone who borrowed money uh, pre-2022 was doing so in a world of, of zero rates, negative rates overseas, but zero rates in the US, and QE that helped to suppress uh, interest rates as well, and very easy lending standards and so on. So that was the case for the last 10 plus years. So every loan that happens to be coming due in 2023, from a business perspective, if you were borrowing at three to 4%, now you're probably gonna have to refinance that loan at maybe seven to 8% if you're a small company. Uh, if you're a bigger company that's that's not investment grade, maybe you're paying six, six or seven versus probably three to four. Now, many companies can handle that, but there are a lot of companies that, that, that are out there that don't have the cash flow to handle that. In addition, that cash flow is now shrinking because the global economy is slowing down. The U.S. economy uh, is, is, is slowing down. I mean, we saw a GDP number this week, and on a fourth quarter 2022 over fourth quarter 2021 basis, the economy grew only 1%. And that growth rate is probably going to shrink even further this year. Uh, then, if, then let's take this into another very interest rate sensitive part of the economy. I mentioned households, but let's talk about commercial real estate. Commercial real estate borrowers, whether you were doing so to develop a new project or you were buying an, ex uh, an existing property, if you borrowed money pre-2022, you were probably doing it at 2 to 3%. If that loan is coming due in 2023, that may, be uh, may, that may have to be refinanced in something that's maybe 7 to 8%. So what, what your models worked at with borrowing rates of two to three and a certain rental rate, well, seven to 8% uh, with maybe still higher rental rates, but more you know, doubling in your, in your borrowing costs that has to be re refinanced in, uh, your cash flows get really tight. So that's why I think this year is gonna be more of, not necessarily an event, that causes a problem for the economy, but sort of like a death by a thousand cuts where this higher cost of capital type environment sort of chips away at, at, at business and, and, and household cash flow. Okay, a couple of things I wanna just follow on here um, because I, I've, I've, I've actually didn't realize this. Um, so when, they, the folk, when the businesses were um, taking out these loans, it was, a, it was a totally different environment. So they may not have anticipated that we would be here. 
uh, for those um, loans coming due in 2023? Is it because, it, and then maybe it's a silly question to ask, is it like floating rates or something? Is that like, because it can they, I, can they actually anticipate this or was it just kind of like bad timing for them? That was a different environment. They weren't expecting it. Yes, that, that's a good point. So to expand, so if you had borrowed money fixed and it comes due, then you pay the higher rate. But if you if you did not borrow fixed and you borrowed floating rate, then your loan is, of course, adjusting, whether it's every month or every quarter. So you, you have felt in 2022 the immediate impact of that sharp rise in borrowing costs. And while rates may stop going up this year in 2023, your interest expense bill is still much higher than it was before this very sharp rise in rates. Now, some businesses, some companies that tend to tend to have been more conservative, they either uh, took on fixed rate or they hedged themselves or they just limited their borrowings. But a lot of businesses, a lot of companies, a lot of people in commercial real estate, uh, they probably got over their skis, they borrowed too much. And certainly we're not penciling in a, a very sharp rise in interest expense going into 2022. So that, that's the adjustment that is that has to be made. In addition to if you're a service company where a lot of your costs are labor, your labor costs are going up, um, your overall cost of doing business is much higher. Uh, so all in all, it's just going to lead to slower growth. And I guess a nicer way of saying death by a thousand cuts is just a, a slower rate of growth that we have to uh, get accustomed to because th this is a, a new interest rate environment relative to the last 15 years that we sort of have to acclimate ourselves to, you know, for those that, that have borrowed money, for those that, that didn't have to borrow that much money and relied on savings, you know, then you can be okay here. But because we, our economy, when I say our economy, households, businesses um, have a very low savings rate in the aggregate, it was borrowing that helped to drive economic growth. Uh, and through cheap money from, from the Fed, we turned what was historically a normal economic cycle into a credit cycle that was very driven by borrowing costs to drive activity, whether it was encouraging people to buy a car or a home or businesses to lever up to do whatever. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, like folks buying the cars, homes, as you mentioned. Um, I would like to talk to, or get your take on, you know, maybe the housing market because we saw those prices just surge in the last two years. What are your thoughts there? Um, do you think we'll see a meaningful correction at some point? Um, and what are some of the implications that could play out there? So we, we've already seen certainly a, a notable sort of correction in the pace of transactions. Uh, and that is because, of course, affordability has changed. And it's affordability that has really negatively impacted that first-time home buyer. Because when you think about the existing home buyer, well, they, they're sort of playing with house money. You know, house prices were up 40% in, combined in 2021, 20, well, 2020, 2021. Uh, so you combine that with the, the higher interest rates, and affordability is a real challenge. Uh, so... An existing home buyer who wants to upgrade to a new home, uh, well, they they can benefit from the rise in the value of their existing home. That said, do they want to swap their low mortgage rate and into a higher mortgage rate? Well, that 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 is is a possibility that that they'll have to balance 
um, but many don't want to, and that limits the inventory. But that first-time buyer has to save even more money to make that monthly payment. So I think the key for housing this year is to what extent do home prices fall to reflect that reduced demand and help to offset the rise in mortgage rates to entice that first-time home buyer to buy a home instead of rent. And in some of the hot markets that we saw in 2020, 2021, uh, that may see the biggest corrections. Uh, but we'll have to see again, because we have also limited inventory with existing homes. Uh, but I think that's the real question for this year, because if you get a, a decent decline in home prices, call it 10, 20%, you know, that can be enough to offset, like I said, that, that higher mortgage rate in terms of one calculating what their monthly payment is. Uh, if home prices don't fall that much, which I think they will just on the supply demand situation, but if they don't, then you're going to see a, a continued decline in the pace of transactions, which means that for every home that's not sold, that means that there's not carpet being replaced. There's not, you're not paint, repainting the walls. You're not buying new furniture. You know, it has sort of a snowball effect. And according to the National Association of home builders, if you look, uh, their estimate is the housing market all in, whether it's remodeling, a transaction, a real estate broker, or whatever, it's about 15 to 18% of the US economy. So it, it, it does have a notable impact uh, when, when you see, uh, you know, a downturn in housing, which we're clearly involved in. Yeah. And I guess like the amount of like net worth, like American homeowners, I guess a big portion of it is in in their house as well. And you're just kind of highlighting some of the um, effects of like, yeah, like not getting new drywall or carpeting and that really paints a, a more clear picture of how it would play out or affect things. And I gotta say, I have yet to buy, I've yet to buy my first house yet. I would like to, but I just feel like, man, I feel like it's probably bad timing. Well, it, it all depends on one's time horizon. If you're going to buy a home that you're going to have for 20, 30 years, then it's really not going to matter what you pay today. If this is going to be sort of a temporary thing that you're going to be in three to five years, well, then it becomes much more sketchy uh, whether you're buying at the right time or not. Uh, but then, of course, on the other hand, rental increases have been so dramatic the last couple of years, it's very expensive to rent, even though those rental gains are slowing down, thankfully, for, for first time you know, households. Uh, or even people out of college, uh, it's still expensive when you looking when you look out relative to where they were the last couple of years. So it's not an easy decision, and um, you know having cheap money for a while, you know inflated the price of of of, of living, and is uh, one of the real negative consequences of, of 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 monetary policy being so easy for so long. Yeah. Before we move on. Um like expanding the conversation because I, I, I do want, at some point I want to get to China because I did hear that was maybe the reopening there was a bit more of a bright spot. I kind of want to just stick around on the domestic economy um, or maybe, maybe it was even globally, but when you defined it as like a death by a thousand cuts economy, can you kind of frame that up? Is that like, it's just like slow growth? Like what it helped me def like define more of your economic outlook here in the U S I would call it like a blah economy. I say blah because we, like, like, like I said last year, we grew 1%. I, I think in 2023, we'll probably see uh, some contraction. And it sort of gets into, we have a soft landing, hard landing, uh, mild recession, a harsh recession. 
but it, it gets one step further than that. And sort of getting, getting to my point is that we can have a mild recession, but one that sort of stays sluggish for a while. And I, and I say this all because, again, we, we need to, assuming that the Fed sticks to their guns and keeps interest rates higher for longer, like I said, it just slows the pace of activity in an economy that was very dependent on borrowing to sustain a level of economic growth, uh, as opposed to having a higher savings rate that was able to fund uh, growth in an economy. So I guess I can call it just very little growth for the next couple of years as we adjust. Now, I wanna emphasize that high, having higher interest rates, particularly relative to inflation, is a more healthy environment. It, 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 it rewards savers. You can actually get a return a risk-free return on your money by buying treasuries, for example. Uh, it, it Having the rate of interest being above inflation, I think, uh, takes out a lot of excesses and, and sort of creates a little bit more discipline uh, on an economy. But there's a transition period going from many years of, of low rates to sort of this shock therapy vertical rise in interest rates. Uh, it's not an easy transition. It's going to take years to fully absorb. And I still think that there's going to be a lot of uh, potholes that we're going to have to drive through uh, in order to make that transition. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this idea too. Um, I had uh, I had Jim Bianco on the podcast back in December, and he was talking about that there's this narrative out there that some folks on, and this was, I'm paraphrasing him from the episode, but that there's some folks out there on wall street that kind of like are praying and hoping for like a recession and that the fed will pivot and cut rates and we'll go back to the low interest rate environment and asset prices will go back up. That's kind of like that, that like bull case out there. Um, what are your thoughts on that narrative? Do, do you see a scenario where the fed would, would cut um, or I, I kind of sensing you're of the mindset of like, they're going to stay a lot um, high, like they'll stay higher for longer. So, so a couple of things. So yes, the bull case is the Fed's going to stop raising interest rates and everything's going to be fine. And if there's a problem, they're going to cut and just follow the Fed. Uh, well, you know what? It's worked for a while. It, uh, if the Fed's easing, you buy stocks. The Fed's tightening, you sell stocks. So if the Fed stops tightening, then everything's fine. The problem with that is right now is the, the, the Fed's reputation has been shattered by their misreading the inflation story, way over easing for way too long. And Powell certainly finally acknowledged that, but he's not gonna just give that up so easily. So let's just take the scenario, the year progresses 2023, just say he's he has he's going to raise in on February 1st and maybe he'll throw in one more which I don't necessarily think he will but let's just say he's done raising interest rates but the economy continues to soften and the unemployment rate continues to rise but then on the other hand you have China reopening you have commodity prices rising and Powell doesn't want to repeat the experience of the 1970s where inflation rose it came back down fed stepped back then you saw a reacceleration of inflation, then it softened, the Fed stepped back, and then you saw the reacceleration into you know, 1980, 1981, where then you had double-digit inflation. So Jay Powell, from his perspective, 
if you are in his mind, he's like, wow, I screwed this up once. I am not going to let go of this. I'm not going to screw this up again by just quickly cutting interest rates and sort of juicing the markets again. Because you have on one hand, the, the, the stock market participant, Jim Bianco, explaining that person that says, oh, you've taken away my drugs and my liquor for a year plus now. I need it back. And the Fed realizing that when they give the liquor, the, the market parties, and that could then engender higher inflationary pressures again. I think this time around, the Fed's just not going to be so easy handing out the booze again. So I think that the Fed, the Fed and Powell is going to want the market to continue to sober up and not be so reliant on them to, to generate market returns in a better economy. Because there used to be a time when stock prices really just followed the direction of earnings rather than stock prices just following what the Fed does. Now, this all said, in the bear market in stocks in 2000 to 2002, the Fed cut all the way through and stocks still went down. In 2007, the Fed started cutting, but the stock market didn't bottom until March 2009. So almost be careful of what you wish for because if the Fed starts cutting this time around, it's because we have a serious recession on our hands. Yeah. So um, it's, it's not so easy as, oh, the Fed's done and, and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, a couple of things um, I want to follow on with you again. Um, and you're, you're great ex explaining things. I'm really enjoying this, like listening and learning from you. So thank you again for coming on, Peter. Really, yeah. really am enjoying it. Okay. So on the inflation bit, um, we know they want to get back to that 2% target. Do you think that's realistic or do we just kind of need to like rethink things that it's going to be much more persistent, higher, like two per what do you think of the 2% target? Well, the 2% target is a very, is an arbitrary number. And the feds, the, 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 the central bank attitude towards a 2% inflation target is, was never modeled to say, you know what, this is the best inflation rate for the economy. Like this inflation rate will produce the best economic outcome. That was not how this 2% inflation rate came about. The 2% inflation rate came about under the attitude that if inflation's at two, that means our Fed funds rate is going to be likely north of that, call it three. And if it's at three, we'll have 300 basis points to cut if we have an economic downturn. So I'm of the belief that 2% inflation chips away at one standard of living in a some arbitrary way. But getting really to your question, can we get back to 2% inflation? I think the key way to analyze that is, okay, what were the factors that got us to the pre-COVID multi-decade trend of, well, not multi, but 10 years prior, one to 2% inflation, or call it 20 years leading into that. So the 20 years leading into COVID to separate services inflation from goods inflation. Services inflation X energy averaged 2.8% in the 20 years leading into COVID. Goods prices, core goods prices, averaged zero. So you marry 2.8% on services, which is about 60% of CPI. You, you put in no price change in goods, 
Then you, then you throw in food and energy prices, which obviously fluctuate. And the combined net effect, give or take, you get your one and a half to 2% inflation for the 20 years leading into COVID. So the question is, are we just going to go back to that sort of environment when all said and done? And one to 2%, easy, easy, lower interest rates from the Fed and everything's fine. Or has the world changed? And maybe we won't get back to the one to 2% inflation. Now, keep in mind, one of the reasons why um, we had zero goods prices was because of a few things. Number one, we had low cost labor out of China that making stuff that they sold to Walmart was pretty cheap. Or they, we had just-in-time inventory where if you work on an assembly line, you get a thousand different parts that go into the, uh, to a car, for example. Each part came in just when I needed it, very smooth, very efficient. Uh, therefore, I can keep my prices in check. Well, now we have just-in-case inventory. Uh, I can't rely on just-in-time because of, look what happened in COVID. I need to have more inventory. I need That means I need to, to, to keep more capital, uh, I, I, higher working capital needs, uh, less cash flow, and likely higher prices. So I argue that for at least the next five years, we're not going back to zero goods prices. Now, on the services side, uh, a lot of it is rents, which saw the sharp rise. Now we're seeing a slowdown. But I still think that demographically, because of the high cost of buying a home, you're going to see rent gains of three, four, five percent persistently. Uh, medical care costs, well, I think they're going to be pretty consistent upwards. Uh, insurance, likely pretty consistent upwards. Tuition, especially if we you know, make further changes to student loans, colleges are going to continue to raise prices uh, three, four, five, six percent pretty consistently. So I think when all said and done, and you have the downside of this inflation spike, wherever it's going to settle out on the downside, we can get to one to two. But where does it go after the downside? Where does where is the natural sustainable rate of inflation in 2024, 2025? And I argue it's not going to be one to two for this reasons I stated, and it's going to be something like three to four. And if it's going to be three to four, that's a different world than we're used to looking back the last 20 years. That's a different world in terms of interest rates too. So that's why I think, uh, that's where I think we're, we're, we're headed after again, the downside in 2023 of the spike in inflation last yeah. year. Yeah, different, different world. Um, one other topic I wanna bring up too was, um, and I'm just taking a, a lot of notes um, as, as you're talking. Um, you pointed out how like the market basically would, it used to just follow like earnings, for example, not the Fed, uh, but that's changed. But just on the earnings front, because we are into Q4 earnings um, season. Do you have any thoughts on this earnings season? Um, there was a note recently about like an imminent uh, earnings recession. What are your thoughts um, about earnings season? Well, I think it's year over year earnings are declining. And I think that's going to persist. That's this year progressive. So I think we're earning, we're in an earnings recession. Now, every earnings season, companies typically beat earnings estimates by 75%. 75% of the companies typically beat because of the earnings game of lowering analyst expectations and lowering the bar. Therefore, it's easy to beat about 75% report that uh, or that report beat. So right now it's running actually closer to 70. And the extent of the beat 
is about half the usual trend. So I think that earnings are pretty mediocre and, like I said, declining on a year-over-year basis. Now, you have moderating revenues because of slowing growth, moderating but still elevated because inflation itself, because earnings reported in nominal terms, inflation helps revenues. But we're seeing a further degradation in profit margins. And I think that that is going to be a theme throughout 2023 is further profit margin um, hits, particularly in with service companies where labor costs are uh, a big piece of one's cost structure. So I think the earnings picture is now a headwind for stocks uh, after the headwind last year being mostly uh, a shrinking P multiple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you brought up that um, a big portion that hits the profit margins is the wage side of things. And um, we've seen a lot of headlines of late of tech layoffs, um, Alphabet, for example, and others. Um, and maybe that's too micro to to think about, but do you have thoughts on um, the wave of layoffs? Do you think, um, is there a scenario where we have more of like a white collar recession? What do you think? Yeah, so that, that's a, a good way of, of describing it because the, the way that we should be looking at the labor market right now is this blue collar, white collar um, labor market. And even more sort of nuanced is we have a labor market where if I'm an employer and I need you on site, you are in higher demand than if you are a worker where you come to the office three days a week or you can work from home five days a week. So nurses, busboys, front desk people at a hotel, airline companies that need flight attendants or pilots or the airport needs somebody at TSA, you are in high demand, you are seeing good wage gains. The white collar worker that is not necessarily needed on site, well, that's where uh, you have less leverage. And you mentioned some of the tech companies that overhired the last couple of years and are, are now uh, rationalizing their labor force. And then if you're in real estate, certainly uh, you, you, you're, you're having a tough time in financial services there. And the question is, is, is does this sort of metastasize into broader parts of the market? Uh, I think it will, but not to a great extent. I think what we're seeing in the labor market really getting impacted is just a slowdown in the pace of hirings. And like I said, some certain spots where firings are picking up, but the overall level of job claims still remains very low. So firings, generally speaking, in the aggregate are modest, but there's been a clear deceleration in, in the pace of hirings because companies are just being more circumspect about the economic backdrop. I mean, every day there's a CEO that's hearing about we're in a recession and things are slowing and so on. Now, some companies are, are seeing it more than others, but, you know, it makes you just a, a, a bit more reluctant on hiring that extra person, even though you probably want to, um, you know, you just be more careful now. That's interesting. Like, yeah, like when they, when you start to hear um, and, and it makes you reluctant, like the, it's, yeah, that's fascinating to think about too. Um, let's uh, go ahead and we'll zoom out. Let's bring up China. Um, you brought it up at the beginning of this conversation as something that might be a bit of a bright spot to your thesis in terms of like 
China's reopening. Um, walk me through um, how you're thinking about China. Okay, so talk, let's talk about China in in non-political ways. Um, we don't need to bring up you know authoritarian government of Xi and everything. Let's just talk about a country that makes up about 17% of the world's population, has a 16 to $17 trillion economy, that, uh, and this population has essentially been locked up for three years. And now they're no longer locked up. So how would, how would one behave? Well, we saw how the rest of the world behaved when they said, okay, enough with COVID. Uh, whether it was Americans or Europeans or whoever, uh, we wanted to go back to living our life the way that we did before. Well, the Chinese want to do that now. And while some people say, oh, well, they've been scarred and it's going to take them time to fully get back out there. Well, I don't think so. I, I think they're going to react just like we did. They want to go to the movies again and they want to travel and they want to go off for dinner and they want to go gambling in Macau, just as like we flocked to Vegas again. So I think that the the the, the Chinese consumer is has sort of been like unleashed, and 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 they saved a lot of money over the last couple of years. So there's also a lot of money that they have that they can spend. Now the the the, the Chinese sort of supply chains and manufacturing side, uh, well, they never really closed down the last couple of years. They they were they were forcibly in a way meant to stay open, uh, whether it was through co closed loop uh, uh, COVID policies or whatever. So it's really the Chinese consumer that is going to be the big boost here. And it's not just good for the Chinese economy, even though they still have challenges with residential real estate and debt. And so it's not like they're going to grow to the same extent they did prior to COVID, but there's also going to be a boost to everybody who does business with China. If you, if you, if we, if you ask any other country in, in Asia, who's your biggest trading partner? Well, it's, it's China. If you ask many countries in Europe, who's your biggest trading partner, particularly Germany, it's China. And um, they're gonna be the big beneficiaries of a China reopening. Now let's take like tourism, for example. The Chinese tourist in the aggregate spent about $250 billion a year pre-COVID. That number basically went to zero. The only travel that Chi the Chinese people were doing during COVID was on the mainland. It was it was uh, it was within the country. Uh, you had about a third of the tours to Japan pre-COVID that came from China. About a quarter came from uh, to Thailand came from China. Those numbers essentially went to zero, and now you are going to see them ramp up again. Now I was looking at the the, the Macau visitor numbers this week because uh, we we have some of the Macau casino stocks. Mm -hmm. And I think it was on Monday or it was on Tuesday, they had 90,000 visitors on Tuesday. Saturday, before that Tuesday, it was 30,000. So there's a ramp. Now it's lunar holiday. So people are uh, are going again. But you know, these are the best numbers since since, since COVID started. So um, I, I think there's a lot of pent up desire to live again. Uh, a normal life and spend money and enjoy things because a lot of these people have been deprived. Their, their, their lives were shut down for three years and they want to go back to where they were. And that also means greater demand for energy and commodities and things that uh, to tie that back into, you know, the Fed that I think is going to make their job um, still challenging uh, in the back half of this year when China really 
fully opens up. Got it. So there are a couple of things on there. Um, and just what you were saying there that, um, this kind of like pent up demand within the Chinese consumer, cause they had been locked down uh, much longer than anyone else. Um, and that demand impacting energy and commodities. So that, as you mentioned, makes the feds job challenge more challenging. Cause you, you do you see like energy prices rising again here in the U S or globally, like talk to me about, um, how you see that one playing out. I think oil prices, uh, well, WTI, I think we go well north of 100 this year. Um, I don't know if it's in the second quarter, the third quarter, but um, you know, China, again, being fully back by the middle of this year, uh, we're going to lead to much higher uh, oil prices, uh, as, you know, looking at one of the particular commodities. So, it, so whatever moderation we're seeing in inflation, um, I think by the second or third quarter, at least headline inflation because of oil prices uh, are going to inflect right back up again. Interesting. So we could, so we could probably see inflate, like maybe could, could we see the CPI tick back up, like have a higher print? Yeah. So we have the spike in inflation. We have now the slowdown. Uh, we'll see where, you know, we sort of bounce off the bottom at, but after bouncing off the bottom, uh, wherever that bottom is, whether it's one or two, wherever, which I think is only going to be temporary, you know, we're going to bounce back up. And like I said earlier, I think sustain ourselves to three to four. And how quickly we bounce up, will energy prices will be one of the, the key factors. I think we're going to have to deal with living in a higher energy price environment just because of limited investment, lack of supply uh, over a multi-year period. And now that you get, you know, the world's um, full demand for energy back on with China, uh, you'll see another spike in oil prices. Noted. Got it. Um, and then on uh, the China reopening story, too, you're mentioning like Macau, for example, the casino, a lot of some casino stocks uh, there um, that are likely to benefit. Uh, how do you. How do you think about playing the reopening? Is it, you know, the casino, like the casino stocks with the exposure in Macau? Um, what what else is it for you? I, I don't know if you have, do you have like a way to play this? So, so we won, we own the casino stocks in Macau, uh, the uh, online travel agencies in Asia that, that, that cater to that market on the, the tourist theme. Um, I, I think, I think any, any consumer-related play in China, whether it's even just life insurance, for example, we own a, one of the largest life insurance companies in Asia, uh, but also you can play by owning Japan and owning Singapore and owning these other, Vietnam, these other Asian markets too, are going to benefit. When you, when you look back over the past 10 years, we know the U.S. stock market dominated. It sucked the energy and air out of the entire global market cap call it. And a lot of it had to do with because of the dominance of US tech. And now I see that mean reverting. And that US tech, big cap tech, you know, the best of their stock days are over. Uh, just for the law of large numbers and that just their growth rates are naturally going to be slower. But I also believe that the growth rates out of Asia also because of a growing middle class in Asia too. That's that's also a big story. Growing middle class in China, in India, in Vietnam, in Indonesia. That is going to help drive economic growth. So I think having 
uh, investments in that part of the world, and even Europe, that's going to be a beneficiary of that as well, lays out the possibility that international and emerging markets over the coming five to 10 years outperform the U.S. markets. Now, that's not to say there aren't opportunities in U.S. markets. Uh, I just think that people need to expand their the geographies of their investment world uh, when looking out the, the, the next bunch of years. And it's not, it shouldn't just be U.S. centric. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about the mean reverting, like the dominance of U.S. stock market mean reverting and the best of like the t- big tech companies, the did I hear you say the best of their stock days are over? Yeah, in terms of these 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 incredible um, market cap increases. I mean, Apple is what a two trillion dollar company. Um, I mean, where where how much they're still gonna you know they can still grow over time, but you know their biggest product is a smartphone. Who doesn't have a smartphone? You know, selling a smartphone now is like selling a TV set. Uh, so while it's a great company and they're certainly adding more products and they we continue to or continue to innovate, they have the services business and so on. Um, I, when you look at what that stock has done compared to what it will do, it's just a much more mature company. So it's not a knock on Apple. It's just the reality of just being big and as successful as they've been. It just gets harder to grow that, 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 uh, that top and bottom line. Yeah. Um, I want to bring up another topic with you because it's more of like a curiosity. And um, I think I think I actually brought this up with Jim Bianco in December too. And it's just like to help folks understand, even help myself understand, because I'm I'm certainly not a macro expert. Can you help me understand like what's happening in Japan? Um, and sorry for like a total topic pivot, but what's happening in Japan with the the Bank of Japan and what some of the implications um, mean uh, globally, I think, as it relates to inflation? I, I think every investor focused on the macro and, and, and how things can sort of flow into each other in, in this cobweb that we live in has to keep an eye on the Bank of Japan, how they manage interest rates and the yield curve from here in the face of 40-year highs in inflation. Now, the Bank of Japan essentially has become an arm of the Japanese government in the sense of suppressing interest rates to finance their extraordinary debt levels. That if interest rates rose notably, it would be just extraordinarily expensive for the, the Japanese government to finance that debt pile. Um, but now it's becoming more difficult to get away with that interest rate suppression because of the rise in inflation. So we saw, so Japan reports two sets of inflation data. One is a little bit more leading than the other. One is just for Tokyo, and the other one is for the whole country. And we just saw uh, the Tokyo number for January, and the, the rate X food and energy, which they call the core core rate, because their core rate is just X food, was up 3%. While they still have negative interest rates, and they're still trying to keep the 10-year yield no higher than 50 basis points, which is an increase from where they had it just a few months ago, 25 basis points. But trying to manage that yield curve is getting more difficult because they're buying 10-year JGB bonds to suppress it, but nine-year JGB yields are now above 10-year. And 15-year JGBs are well above the 10-year and 
further out or well above that as well. So with the Bank of Japan governor, Haruhi, Haruhiku Kuroda, uh, leaving in April, uh, will the his successor just carry on with this yield curve suppression? Or will they acknowledge that inflation is higher, potentially for longer, that they need to get out of negative yielding interest rates on the short end, and they need to widen or get rid of yield curve control? And I think the ripple effect that will have on global bond markets will be notable and that it's going to ripple into European bonds because the European Central Bank at the same time is also raising interest rates further. They're also going to be uh, embarking on quantitative tightening. And that's going to have a spillover effect, I believe, in, in U.S. Treasury yields as well. So while I can argue that the 10-year yield should go to three from three and a half today because of rolling over inflation and slow growth, I can also argue that the 10-year yield is going to, going to go to four and a half to five because the Bank of Japan is going to lose control of their bond market. The European Central Bank is going to lose control of their bond market. The Fed's going to lose control of our bond market. And we have that other, other problem. I don't necessarily know how it's going to play out. But my point is, is that you have to focus on how the Bank of Japan, to wrap this up, this point, on how they manage this exit while inflation continues to trend higher there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I always thought, I always thought Japan had like a deflation problem. It might, was I, maybe I was totally off on that. I mean, I mean, I always thought that like maybe in more recent years, I always thought I was for some reason associated deflation with Japan. Maybe well, what, what's wrong. interesting about Japan is if you, if you look at Japan's inflation rate, since 1990, the bubble popped in 1989. So look at it from 1990 to 2020. So 30 years, CPI in Japan actually averaged zero. So you want to talk about price stability, which is the true mandate of, of central banks. Their CPI averaged zero. They actually had true price stability. I think the problem that we we, we got ourselves into with these central banks is, is they didn't like low prices. They felt they, they, they somehow equate higher inflation with higher economic growth. But we need to inflation where is just another term for cost of living. And it's really better to focus on limiting one's rise in the cost of living. Because if you have low cost of living, you have higher real wages. So on a per capita income basis, Japan actually grew because price prices were very stable. Incomes, while they were very anemic in growth, um, on a real basis, they still went up. And per capita income in Japan rose over the past 30 years. So deflation is not a bad thing. Look at technology. The, 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 the personal computer, if you, if, if, let's, let's rewind to 1980. IBM comes out with the personal computer. And they were selling it for three thousand dollars. If we had two percent inflation every year that the Fed wants on a PC, that computer today would be six to eight thousand dollars. But luckily, we had deflation in the cost of that PC that allows someone to buy that same computer for a thousand dollars. So that's called good deflation. So deflation is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it keeps things cheap uh, just by being more productive and more efficient. You were able to build more things at a lower price. Um, so we shouldn't look at 
inflation, deflation, black or white, good or bad. It depends on what kind of inflation we have, what kind of deflation we have. That's a really good point. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not black or white. And again, like awesome to have you because I'm, you're teaching me a lot in this process too. Um, let me ask you this, Peter, is there like a narrative out there, whether it's like in macro or markets, just maybe big picture. Like, is there a narrative out there that's like you find kind of common that you think is just totally off? Like, and, and I, maybe that's way too open of a question, but what are like maybe some of the common narratives you hear that you're like, this, that's just totally off and here's why. That That's actually a really interesting question. Um, Well, you, you mean in terms of like the economy or the stock market? It or... could be anything, either one. And maybe that's too broad, but yeah. like um, Okay, well, I, I just mentioned one. Um, the belief that somehow deflation is bad and central banks need to fight deflation at all costs. Um, and I want to say to them, okay, well, if what, what price do you want to go up 2% a year? Do you want oil prices to go up to 2% a year? Oh, no, no, we can't have gasoline prices go up. Okay, well, if gasoline prices are not going to go up, do you want your iPhone to go up in price. No, no, we can't have that. Okay, well then what price do you want to go up 2% a year? Uh, so that, that, that's one thing. Um, I, I guess in the, you know, in the, in the stock market, yeah, don't fight the Fed is historically paid off. Um, but when you have, but you have to remember that there are moments in the past, like I said earlier, in 2000, 2002, 2007, 2009, that, the Fed didn't necessarily save you. Um, I think that investors should always focus on company fundamentals and not whether the Fed is hiking or lowering interest rates when making an investment decision. And while I'm old school and I focus on valuations, um, I think people should as well and not always sort of get drunk on, on cheap money. Um, I mean, that's just more of a lesson rather than something that's necessarily wrong. But um, I think that that lesson, I think right now is being learned and we'll see whether uh, it gets remembered. But human nature is human nature and we tend to repeat um, things over and over again, whether it's a mistake or not. Yeah. And it also sounds like, you know, from having this conversation, like the world's changed. Like we're not going back to the way it was. Like people have to keep that in mind too. Yeah, um, we, we need a different... We. we Markets run in cycles and what used to work works for a period of time and then things change and you just have to acknowledge a change. And just as like a parent says to a child when they go out, um, you know, be aware of your surroundings. Well, as an investor or a business person, you always have to be around of you. Uh, you have to be aware of your investing surroundings. You have to be aware of your economic surroundings. And right now we are in different surroundings. We have higher inflation. Again, even though it's coming down, we have a higher cost of capital environment. Um, it, it's it's a different world and we just have to acknowledge that. And, and you can just see in the market, so many people just wanna go back to the way it was. A one to 2% inflation, the Fed's easy, everything's fine. And while I would like to go back to that too, it's just not gonna happen so quickly. Yeah, yeah, not gonna happen so quickly. Um... We only have a few minutes left, but I didn't even ask you this and maybe I should have too, but um, I mean, I was reading a bit of your bio before we came on and 
I don't know your actual, like, I don't know your story or how you got into macro. And I know you've been doing it for um, several decades. Would you mind like just sharing a bit of like how you got into this business and how specifically did you get into macro? Well, I've been doing this for 30 years. And while I talk a lot of macro, I still love the micro as well. I still love the plain vanilla stock picking. Uh, and I try to marry the two. And I actually wanted to be a sports agent and really? went to law school for that, even though I left law school after one year because I got a job on Wall Street and didn't want to go back to law school. But, uh, you know, I've always been a, a student of, of the markets. Uh, I've always been interested in business and to be able to bring both together of, of being able to invest in a company because when I buy a stock, that's how I look at it. I'm not just buying a stock symbol. Uh, you're investing in a business. But also, I just appreciated the importance of focusing on the macro because the macro affects the micro. If I'm a, um, if I'm a, a business and I'm selling stuff, well, I, I have to focus on you know, the, the, the macro stuff and, and how that influences the behavior of my customers. Uh, and here I am now. Uh, focused on, on 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 both and trying to you know, tie my macro thematic thoughts and how to invest uh, with with those thoughts in mind. Whether it's a, a big picture macro bet or it's just buying an individual company that can benefit uh, you know in that sort of context. I love that, I, and I like the the blending of the of the two. Um, Peter, I really appreciate you coming on because again, like I em would emphasize you, you taught me a lot in this. And um, that's what I love about the show is I'm learning in the process. I get to talk to so many incredible people, incredibly smart people like yourself. So I'm grateful that you came on, but Peter, I want to give you a few minutes um, to share, like let, let folks know where they can find you, where they can get the book report. Um, so just take a few minutes to do that. And if you have any parting thoughts, anything that we didn't bring up in this conversation, that's kind of, you know, maybe um, something that you're thinking about, if you want to just take the next couple of minutes, um, let folks know where they can find you, learn more, um, subscribe to the book report and any parting thoughts. So with the book report, uh, they can trial it. Uh, I write daily. It's B-O-O-C-K report.com. They can trial it for free. And if they like it, they can subscribe. Uh, also, being the CEO of a wealth management firm, they can learn more about our company at bleakly.com. Uh, and the, the parting thought here is time horizon is the key to successful investing. And bear markets, tough markets, challenging markets always create great opportunities. And the key to having good future market returns, uh, usually uh, you can create that by buying things in bear markets. So when the world seems very scary and intimidating and challenging, uh, that's typically the better time to invest. When things look great and everyone's excited and everyone's happy and the stock market's at really high levels, that's typically uh, the wrong time to invest. So sort of like look at things in the opposite way. And, and I'll, let, I'll lastly say, and I, I like to give this analogy, Walmart became a very successful company on the mantra of selling products at everyday low prices. Well, if the New York Stock Exchange said everyday low prices, everyone would freak out and get scared. If Walmart changed the name to everyday high prices, no one would show up 
the New York Stock Exchange says everyday high prices and everyone's rushing through the door and wanting to buy stocks. So in, in more difficult economic and market environments, it's actually uh, a, a good um, environment for buying things on sale. I love that. Like, so is the stock, the stock exchange, it's like the only store where the stuff goes on sale where all the customers go running out the door. They get scared. Yeah. I like that. It's a great parting thought. Well, Peter Bookbar, CIO of Bleakly Financial Group, author of the book report, B-O-O-C-K, and a CNBC contributor. Really, really enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Would love to have you back on in the future. Peter Bookbar, thank you again. Thanks, Julie. I really appreciate it and look forward to it.